Welcome to another episode of Weird Era, the podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, we are joined by Andrew F. Sullivan to discuss his latest novel, The Marigold. Alongside The Marigold, Andrew is also the author of the forthcoming novel, The Handyman Method, co-written with Nick Cutter about home improvement gone wrong, releasing from Gallery Books and Saga Press on August 8th, 2023. Sullivan is also the author of the novel Waste and the short story collection All We Want is Everything. He lives in Hamilton, Ontario. The Marigold, a gleaming condo tower, sits a half-empty promise, a stack of scuffed rental suites and undelivered amenities that crumbles around its residence as a mysterious sludge spreads slowly through it. Public Health Inspector Kathy Jin investigates this toxic mold as it infests the city's infrastructure, rotting it from within, while Sam Soda Dalipagic stumbles into a dangerous cache of data while cruising the streets in his Camry, waiting for his next rideshare alert. On the outskirts of downtown, 13-year-old Henrietta Brakes chases a friend deep underground after he's snatched into a sinkhole by a creature from below. All the while, construction of the city's newest luxury tower, Marigold 2, has stalled. Stanley Marigold, the struggling son of the legendary developer behind this project, decides he must tap into a hidden reserve of old power to make his dream a reality, one with a human cost. Weaving together disparate storylines and tapping into the realms of body horror, urban dystopia, and eco-fiction, the Marigold explores the precarity of community and the fragile designs that bind us together. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alex. So we're jumping in as we always do here. Um, I want to ask you about creating a polyphonic story. Um, you have a real stacked cast of characters in the Marigold, um, though some of, some of their storylines do collide in various ways throughout the novel. There's still this quality in the storytelling itself and in the character developments that all complement each other despite their numbers. Uh, what was the motivation to give yourself such a generous cast? Uh, I think that's a great question because it really gets to the heart of the novel right away. Um, mm. I think I'd actually previously written a novel that didn't sell that was very straightforward and simple and had, you know, three points of view all delivered individually. And nobody bought that. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to do the craziest thing I can do. <laughs> I'm going to put 20 perspectives in because I don't care anymore. And I want to write the novel I want to write. And I wanted to write a book about a city and I didn't want it to be that bullshit of, oh, the city is the main character. But the fact that a city is made up of all these individuals and mm -hmm. how those stories are sort of fragmented and how little we do know of each other and yet still influence each other's lives. And so trying to do that, I ended up saying, OK, I'm going to have to keep bringing in these different characters. And so, you know, we have those sort of four or five main leads who kind mm -hmm. of walk us through the narrative and collide. Uh, but throughout, we also have these suites, which are sort of mini chapter vignettes of different people who live in the titular Marigold. And those were important to me to kind of express, you know, the different experiences and lifestyles, you know, in a city like Toronto and the kind of people who end up trapped in these kind of buildings. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, yeah, the polyphonic for me was important to tell a story that was 
well-rounded, but also a story about isolation and alienation and that sort of like, you know, my editor actually called it not so much dystopia as like urban fatigue, where Mm. there's just this constant grind and wear and tear on your psyche and on yourself and on your possessions and on the way you live. Um, You know, you are sort of atomized and pulled apart from community in a lot of ways. Uh, Sometimes it can be hard in a city to find that community. You do have to work for it. And so I think that's where the polyphonic came from for me is it's I wanted to tell a horror story that was about that kind of alienation to show the parallels between people, but also how they're fragmented. Well, it's also so, you know, it's so typical of city life that, you know, you know, your neighbors exist. You don't know who they are or you don't know anything about them. You know, they're there. Yeah, you hear them and you're like, wow, it's a new guy this week. But you don't necessarily <laughs> or, you know, oh, they've, they're trying a new recipe and it's not working out. Uh, yeah, you, you kind of you again, you sort of learn about them in fragmented ways. There are people who you're familiar with, but almost only due to routine um, right. or to, you know, just being in a certain neighborhood. And, you know, sometimes that can grow into something greater. But I think it also sometimes, you know, to protect ourselves a little bit, sometimes we are also, you know, going to put up that protective layer and that film uh, just to give us, you know, our own personal space. There is a certain and specific building that happens with this novel. And I mean that in the most intentional of ways. Um, The pacing really struck me. The foundation of the story is laid out right in the beginning And development comes slow at first. It feels almost stalled in places for short periods. But as you build the story and the characters, the pacing quickens and the story and the completion of the story become far more urgent. If you are the architect of this building, that is the story, the Marigold, how did you work with pacing out the construction? I think that's a great way to put it. It is very much like a constructed novel. It's a novel of systems and it's a novel of disparate parts that are, you know, each serving a function. Like I joke sometimes that, you know, I'm a brutalist, whatever, but everything does have a function. And so in this novel, yes, it was the idea of creating that foundation by setting up all the pieces, which does take some time and does take some effort from my readers who I appreciate. Uh, because I do want to have everything set up because once it gets, you know, once the wet, which is sort of this terrible fungus that's creeping through the city, Mm -hmm. once that gains enough speed and enough momentum, it can't really be stopped. And so I wanted to make sure I was grounded enough that when things are going kind of wild later, we remember that it used to be more static. We remember Mm -hmm. that it used to be more defined Uh, There were limits and now maybe there aren't. And so I think I really wanted to set up that framework in my editor and I did move things around quite a bit. Mm. This was a novel that I even rewrote from scratch eventually. Like I, wow, you know, every sentence it's hard to do, but I do think it's worth it just to be like, okay, is this in here on purpose? Like, what did, what did you, I'm not a big planner when I start writing a book. I think it's Mm -hmm. good to, you know, explore your characters, explore, be generative, have fun. But then when you're, you know, deep in it, you're like, okay, I have to make decisions. And I mean, that's kind of what, you know, art or writing is like what you leave out to, right? It is Mm -hmm. the frame. 
you are choosing what we see, what we hear, what we experience as the author. And so I was trying to be very intentional with that. And I think, you know, also for a horror story, Mm -hmm. uh, it's good and something that's near future and something that's unsettling and something that's kind of, you know, unnamed for a while. You do want to set up a world that is believable or that is, you know, comfortable in a way, even if it's comfortable in its, you know, discomfort in its in its reality and its tactile gritty nature whatever else before you pull the rug out um that's how i like to work i mean some people you jump right in and things are wild and that's great but i did kind of want to create a sense of normalcy and then strip it away so that's that's part of it and you still are kind of you know you're you're still exposing the beams so to speak right yeah, yeah yeah and you're still like you still want something that people can hold on to and remember and say, okay, I'm going to go. I remember this was important earlier. Um, and I mean, it is risky too. Like you said, there are places where, you know, right. Readers have said, you know, well, where is this going? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a risk I'm taking for my readers that they would follow me and that they would mm-hmm. trust that this will pay off. And I think it does, but it's definitely um, a risk as a writer and a risk as like a, creator to kind of take those big leaps from character to character where you're kind of like you sometimes return to someone and you're like oh yeah this person uh (laughs) but i'm hoping too that that's sort of to me reflective of you know how you exist in a city and how you exist in a place where you know i think covid kind of killed that but something that i've always loved about urban life or urban places is how many connections you create that are great and you you love them and you experience them, but they're not people you'd ever like invite into your home, but they're right. people who <laughs> create, gave texture to your life or you love seeing them out at the bar t- two times a month and it's great to see them and they add a sort of richness to your experience of a place. But I mean, I can't be best friends with a hundred people, you know, <laughs> I, I, and it's not that those tears are like people who are worth less or anything, but it's like, there's a comfort in having those kind of relationships. And I think, you know, we lost a lot of that during the lockdown stages of the pandemic and we still deal with it now. But, you know, I wrote a lot of this novel before then where it was just sort of a story about uh, losing yourself a little bit to, uh, to the wet, to the Mm. sort of growing unease and dread that kind of exists underneath us. I want to talk a bit about um, conspiracy theories here. You know, I, I'm thinking specifically and, and obviously so does father um, really lets his paranoia get the better of him a lot of the time. But at the same time, his past experiences and the thumb drive that's given to him by soda proves that he's right on the money in terms of this culty corporate conspiracy that's at play. Um, Not to mention the circle of developers at the center of this novel really have this QAnon quality about them. So the question is, were you thinking of QAnon when you wrote those scenes? And as a follow-up, would you consider yourself a conspiracy theorist? (laughs) Putting me on the spot. No, I think it's... uh... I think that's great. That's a great part of the novel and something I really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing with conspiracy is, I mean, it just exists as soon as like there's people with power and resources. Like as yeah. soon as people can yeah. meet behind closed doors, 
that is created. I think, you know, QAnon's insane and like wild bullshit that people are swallowing whole. But I do think when you live in a society where you're constantly lied to by authority figures, you know, when you see, you know, that your government or the people who you're supposed to respect have violated people's rights or have mm-hmm. committed grievous crimes in your name, um, you really start to second guess and wonder and you start to worry about values uh, that, you know, don't exist maybe anymore. Uh, right. <laughs> like, I think that's Soda's father is sort of, he, that's what he struggles with is like everything he believed in no longer exists. And maybe never did too. Like there is sort of, sometimes I feel like people who get really into conspiracy are also f- at times kind of naive. Like mm-hmm. they, they did expect everything they were told was true. And when it's not, it's like, a, it's like almost a little bit like still being angry at your parents about Santa. Right. Like, you, like, all right. Like, did we all really believe this? Like, are you t- um, like, come on, guys. But I do think, you know, like, I do think that some responsibility for how crazy this stuff uh, gets does fall like on our governments, on our leadership, on people who have been willing to hide things. Um, cause that's the worst thing about conspiracy is when they come true. It's like, oh, are you kidding? Exactly. <laughs> um <laughs> But in the case of, I, I think conspiracy is is common, but I also don't think it's like very special. Like I think men with mm-hmm. power do terrible things because they can. I think people accumulate wealth, get that power, and then use it to do whatever they want. And mm-hmm. I think that means what we see is like the same patterns over and over. So we see right. the same patterns of, you know, wealth accumulation. We see the same patterns of, you know, taking advantage of marginalized Mm. communities. We see the same patterns of, you know, creating an out group that has no rights, Mm -hmm. create, you know, you know, people who do prey on children or other people like that. Like you see it across, you know, Epstein stuff, Catholic church, whatever. It's, it's the same beats (laughs) and it just wears a different face. And so I don't think it's like, lizard people levels it's more just like this is what power does if Mm -hmm. we don't keep it in check so Mm. i did want that to be there in the novel but i also like that developer called like what's great about it is that you know stanley not too many spoilers but is kind of like oh my god i have to do this dumb thing (laughs) like i can't believe i have to go and do the stone and like put on the robes Put on the robe. Oh, my God. My dad had this stupid robe and now I have to wear it. Like, you know, he's like a 50 year old man, but he's like petulant teen about it. And I do think, you know, there are those elements like it's silly. But part of why you do the ritual is to say, I'm different. I am Mm -hmm. something else. Even if, you know, your special sacred stone is from Dollarama, you know, (laughs) like you create the power for it. And I think that's what's unsettling about it to me. And then to have, you know, the gardener character who opens the novel, mm-hmm. somebody who is a true believer and sincere and sick. And so mm-hmm. and like and that his understanding of what it means is so different from, you know, Stanley's understanding. Right. And would you consider yourself a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> Andrew? Uh, no. But I I have sympathy, but no, I think most conspiracy, I think, is often people who are 
uh, deeply frustrated and confused and mm. need help. Uh, mm. So for myself, I'd probably do believe in a few conspiracy theories, but <laughs> I, uh, but then, you know, I, you see enough, uh, you see enough things come true, I guess, in your lifetime or get revealed once the documents are unclassified that it, <laughs> it becomes hard to be like, oh no, I trust everybody. I think, I think a, a heavy dose of skepticism is useful. And so that will probably always put me there. But I mean, if you came to me talking about lizard people or moon landings, I, I might have to just smile and nod I, and then quietly pack up my things. <laughs> I was looking into just existentialism in literary horror for this interview, which is a yeah. subject I love on the best of days um, awesome. and was reading just about Lovecraft, there was this one quote that I saw that was Lovecraft's cosmicism was a result of his feeling of humanity's existential helplessness in the face of what he calls the infinite spaces opened up by scientific thought and his belief that humanity was fundamentally at the mercy of the vastness and emptiness of the cosmos. Instead of the emptiness of the cosmos in the Marigold, you place your characters in the emptiness of metropolitan life, uh, specifically Toronto, and even more specifically in the Marigold Tower itself. At the same time, I'm really thinking of the ending of the book um, and the kind of vast emptiness that Kathy and Henrietta have to contend with, like in closing pages. Um, what interests you about writing about existentialism in this way? I think what's interesting to me is this, I think, I think, you know, I was raised in a very Irish Catholic way. Mm -hmm. You know, I was very mm -hmm. like from birth, just sort of, you know, cooked in it, boiled in it alive. Um, and, you know, but, but by the time I was like eight or nine, I was kind of like, is it? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> ah. But, uh, you know, it's just such a part of my life that, you know, culturally it's stuck with me. But right. it's and, you know, made English classes easy. But, you know, it's like, oh, that's an illusion. That's an illusion. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. But um, I think for me, it's that, you know, I the arrogance of human existence sort of mm -hmm. is fun to play with and is something that is sort of part of this novel very heavily is. It's almost a frustrated quest narrative for so many of these characters, whether it's Kathy or Stanley or Henrietta, where they all believe they kind of understand the wet, that they right. understand um, what's happening to their city, and they and they don't. They maybe understand a fragment. They've touched part of the elephant, but they don't understand the whole thing, and they never will really. Like, mm -hmm. and I think that's what I yeah, that's what interests me is like accepting, like almost trying to find a radical acceptance of the limits of yourself and knowledge and your place in the universe and not, you know, immediately crumbling into despair, but reckoning with just the reality of how much is beyond you and how much you won't experience and how much you, you know, how limited your range is. Um, I think that's what intrigues me about it or that's what is exciting to me. And I, and and how many people fall apart when they are confronted with that. I think mm. I think I've seen that happen and I I think that does happen and that could happen to me as well. I think, you know, forces like grief and love and 
other things can kind of sometimes, you know, you see something that you've never seen before. How do you express Mm -hmm. that? You experience an emotion that's never sort of been triggered in you before. How do you articulate that? I mean, those to me are like almost those moments of, you know, cosmic horror or cosmic delight or, you know, limits of experience. I think that's kind of where it came into this novel for me and reckoning, I guess, with, you know, how small our existence is, you know, from... And there's the gentle way of like a Calvin and Hobbes comic saying that <laughs> I'm significant, scream the dustbin. And then there's the Andrew Sullivan way. And then, there's, yeah, and then there's me with just a big sledgehammer wandering around the house. <laughs> yeah, I think like, yeah, I don't claim to be an especially subtle writer like Alex. I think you got that from the book, but mm-hmm. I do want to have fun with it. I want to explore those ideas and I want to play um, and maybe I'll play a little dirty, but. I want to, you know, throw my characters into these situations and have them sort of face down what scares me. Um, Mm. And I think that is what you see with, you know, Henrietta and Cabeza's relationship, too. Like, okay, I've just confronted this thing (laughs) that attempts to be human or maybe was human. And eventually I either have to accept that. Or surrender. Like I have to I have to incorporate this into my new world, right? I have to incorporate yeah. this into my life. Yeah. And I think that's also a lot of what the novel's about, too, is it's like, oh, it's this apocalypse or this it's this dystopia. And it's like, well, we still have to pay rent, right? Yeah. Still, like so like what happens when like your world is ending and yet you still have all your obligations? And I I mean obligations to me are probably more terrifying in a way. And I think it's that holding those ideas in tension, which is what, you know, books should do or what art should do mm-hmm. is like holding two ideas up and saying, look at both of these at once. And then, you know, straining your eyes to kind of process it. Um, so I, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I think I, maybe I'm talking around it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit, but I mean, my my follow up question to that yeah. is um, how does that answer change when I ask you what interests you about writing about body horror. Right. Okay. See, yeah. Body horror. I love, I think it's like foundational to Canadian horror aesthetics. I think you have to, uh, I think just being in a body, I think what's great about body horror is it's this true expression of how you betray yourself. Right. And, you know, that you literally, you know, what is what what your existence can undermine you, your own, you know, body. And it's not this Tumblr meme shit of, oh, you're just electricity inside a meat package. That's no like bodies are far more complicated than that. I think I think, Mm -hmm. you know, they are who we are in a way. And the fact that they can betray us you know, whether it's through cancer or illness or even parasites, like the fact that they are permeable, that they're not self-contained systems, that they are influenced by their environments, all of that's Mm -hmm. horrifying. You know, they are places of change. They are things that, you know, you watch in real time decay. And decay is horrifying in a way, but it's also incredibly 
I don't know, to me, generative. Like, I love, like, bogs, swamps, rock. Like, those are places full of life that are also yeah, full of yeah, death yeah, at the absolutely. same time. Yeah, and that, that to me is really exciting. But there is a, I think there's a huge discomfort. Like, you'd almost look at, like, I feel like there are horror readers or viewers out there who really just see aging as body horror. Like, once you get up there, you really are. You're losing things. Things are being taken from you. Mm-hmm. Um and by nothing but the sheer passage of time, uh, by, you know, the laws of physics or the laws of whatever that you have no influence over. And I think we see this desperation, too, in like the tech world where you've got these mm-hmm. guys who are like, well, I'm going to look 40 forever. I'm yeah. going to live. I'm going to outlive. I'm going to, you know, put my consciousness in the machine. And that seems like a denial of your own humanity to me is like mm-hmm. decay is part of that and it's an exciting part of it because it's how something new will eventually come forward and i think that's for me too with the marigold a bit of i don't see it as like inherently (laughs) depressing all the time as some folks who've read it do i'm like like i'm interested in what can flourish after or what flourishes within or what possibilities are out there for us i don't i'm not slamming the door on things, but I think there's a line in there about flipping the mattress, you know, what yeah. is, you know, what's a new possibility of living um, and body horror taps right into that. And I think we have, we see that really well in, you know, daddy Cronenberg and baby Cronenberg. And um, in... I was going to talk about Cronenberg in this interview. Yeah, yeah, no, like, we, we will Let's get just there. see if we get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you have to, I think like if you're yes. talking about Canadian horror and and somebody who, you know, like people are just like Cronenberg. It's not even like, oh, the Canadian Cronenberg. And I've found that with horror fiction as well, like with the Marigold, mm. like American audiences, or they're not like, oh, it's about Toronto. Oh my God. These guys are still into Cronuts. No, it's like, it's like, oh, it's a, yeah, it's a city novel and it's about these things and it takes place in Canada. Like it's, it's not a holding it back. And I think mm-hmm. horror like is freeing in that way from those sort of like can lit constraints. Mm. Um, so I think that's, and, and it's been that way with film as well. So I think bringing that to books, bringing that to genre is exciting. Um, just because it, it, the audience is so willing to kind of go there with you, even if they hate you, they don't hate you because it's Toronto. They hate you for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Which is refreshing. You know, <laughs> There's a really interesting chapter, one of the suites that we were mentioning earlier, um, featuring the character Sunil, who is the founder of Fodder, which for our listeners is this type of you know Uber Eats food delivery service. Um, uniquely, though, the Fodder app has a whole questionnaire that the consumer answers um, that will in turn, quote, push the best meals towards each client. In reality, you write, the survey led to nothing. It is, in essence, this marketing tactic to make you think fodder is looking out for you and making sure you have the best experience possible. This is a chapter or a suite that is ultimately about the illusion of choice. I want to hear your thoughts. How does capitalism make this a desirable illusion? Wow. Okay. Awesome. This year, the first person asking me about this chapter and these things, I was, I really enjoyed writing it. I still remember when I wrote it. It was, mm-hmm. so this is really fun. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's 
presenting you with an idea that you sort of getting back to that existentialist uh, angle we had earlier. Oh, yeah. There are threads. There are threads here. We'll have a whole sweater by the time we're done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's this illusion that I mean, on the most basic face of it, right? It's this illusion that you matter and mm-hmm. that your choices matter and that mm-hmm. they are unique from people in your community and that you can be atomized and you are worthy as an individual. Um, which is just really impossible with capitalism at scale. Like it's just, it just doesn't happen. It can't, um, if anything, it's sort of, you know, it's an illusion that you're being sold and that you kind of agree to, um, the idea that you can live like a perfectly bespoke existence, you know, I think that's a not really possible. And like B again, kind of speaks back to that arrogance of like, well, you know, I'm very unique. I, I I think there's like a there's a Chris Fleming sketch where he talks about it's called the grad student shuffle. Mm-hmm. And one of his examples he gives is that, you know, uh, name an esoteric food in an esoteric place. And it's like, oh, the best tikka masala I ever had was in Phoenix. Just this idea that, like, like you're going to have this experience that no one else could possibly have. And you'll never be able to recreate it. And they'll never be able to Yeah, no one else will be able to access that memory. That restaurant's not there anymore, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it got torn down. There was actually a fire. (laughs) It was really sad. The guy's mom just lost her mind. And she also burned all the recipes. So no one will ever have, you know. It's, it, yeah, it's like the the, the fetishization of experience and mm-hmm. um, desire for that individuality that, you know, I think is human and normal to have, but is something that, yeah, capitalism, a group like fodder in the, the book is, you know, yeah, have people fill out this survey and then they'll feel like they're being listened to. Whether they are or not is irrelevant. And I mean, that's my own you know, internalized cynicism, I'm sure. But that's also, I kind of do believe like a lot of what, you know, our choices come down to is, you know, there's five things to choose from. But if we Mm -hmm. add a little adjective to each one, maybe we can turn that into 25, you know. And so the urge to differentiate and yet still be part of the collective. Mm -hmm. It's almost like how kids get into Pokemon where like you can have your own. But it's one of 150 or however many now, a thousand now. But it's the idea of like, you can create a unique personality within a taxonomy. Right. You know, it's not so unique that no one knows what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But they're never going to have that dish in Phoenix because the restaurant burned down. Like it's (laughs) it's like you put the signifiers up and then. Uh, you know, you, you, you put a little gate up that says, oh, you can't come in here. This is this is my fodder uh app right. this is my special choice i guess selfish question and just appease my curiosity for a <laughs> of moment course, of course um you write in that same chapter what fodder did have was exclusive deals with certain restaurants throughout the city that allowed their dishes to be reproduced in ghost kitchens again this question is solely for me and i don't know if you have an answer are ghost kitchens real yes yes Especially more so in America, especially in, like, San Francisco, New York, like, cities that are big enough. They are, yes. Um, They're often, you know, and often it kind of makes sense sometimes, too. Like, if you have three or four restaurants, you'd have a commissary. Mm -hmm. You'd be making, like, all your cookies in one spot. You'd be making, 
like uh so they're very common uh the 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 creepier version is places that are you know gonna have create a name that's like one letter off of a popular restaurant and then you put it on doordash but you know if you don't have front of house if you don't have uh like really any you know a lot of you get rid of a lot of the overhead right and you're Mm -hmm. just you're in a commercial kitchen you rent the space you get the ingredients you have your drivers they definitely do exist um I don't necessarily think they're horrible, but, but like they, they, you know, like, cause they serve a purpose in a way they're making food. Great. But absolutely, the idea, absolutely. yeah. But the idea of when they're pretending to be something else, when what you're being sold is not what you're buying. I think that's kind of what fodder's doing, but yes, ghost kitchens are real. They've been real since, you know, DoorDash was a thing. Um, and I think they probably p- proliferated even more through the pandemic where you mm. had, it's even like less like why would I even put a sign up? I'll just yeah, <laughs> make yeah, sure yeah, I'm fair. the first clickable guy on the <laughs> app. Uh, but it is it can be predatory too, right? Like you're taking things from other people, you know, putting a sticker on it that says it's yours. Yeah. And then selling it, you know, and taking 40 percent, 50, 60 percent mm-hmm. of the profit away from the people actually making the food. Um, Again, really, it was just I think it was the first time that I'd ever read or heard of the term ghost kitchen. And I was immediately like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you would have an answer. And I'm glad you did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and it's a good question, too, because it is sort of like you're like, is this a thing? And you look into it, you're like, it is. Yeah. There are, um, you know, some big conversations happening in the Marigold in general. There are really big questions pertaining to uh, surveillance and the scary kind of overreaching and overarching new technological modes of controlling or or just surveilling a a population. Um, You write, quote, Kathy recognized the man from back when the new corporate district was first pitched to the city, a new form of community, a city of the future built on sustainability, connection, and most importantly, data. Do you think this idea of the future in terms of technology and data collection and surveillance is unavoidable? And if so... How much are we already living in it? I think it's hard to say. I think, like, we almost had it happen in Toronto with Sidewalk Labs. Um, Could COVID you kind of... explain a little bit what Sidewalk Labs is? Yeah, I have no sure. Idea Sidewalk Labs was sort of similar to what Threshold does in the book. So it was going to okay. be, it was owned by Google, and it was going to be this, like, neighborhood in Toronto that would collect a lot of data. There was a lot of people who were, you know, skeptical of this and what was going to be claimed from people and participating and you know it didn't end up going anywhere primarily due to covid but the pushback from the community was very strong Hmm. so i don't i don't like to say sort of anything like this would be inevitable but i think it's always like on the precipice like we're always like you see it with you know working from home and other things how invasive technologies are trying to you know like people who have to jiggle their mouse every 10 minutes, that kind of thing. Right. And I think, you know, I think one thing maybe 20, 30 years ago, the idea of like, oh, data and like improving efficiency and making the city better. Like you can frame that really easily as like a a really positive thing because Mm -hmm. we're, we're all working together. But I think as we've seen with like recently with like AI and chat GPT and 
Mint Journey and all that bullshit. Like, who owns that data? Right. Why are we get? Who's collecting it? How is it being sorted? Like, the idea that any of this can be done without some of the intrinsic bias that already exists um, towards, you know, more marginalized communities or other people, like, mm-hmm. it's pretty quick to see that, like, who collects the data really reflects what kind of data gets collected and what kind of data matters. And why wouldn't that data or why shouldn't that data, especially in a city, be publicly owned? Right. Right. It belongs to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're what my fear more so is and we've seen it happen is people getting turned into like it's it's human daily life becoming an extractive resource where, you right. know, like collecting all the step counts of the world, <laughs> collecting all the water usage of the world, collecting all the electric like these things are done on like certain levels, but to try and unify it all and to try and surveil it all, I think I'm never going to be a fan of or never going to willingly walk into that, you know, into that arena. I don't want to be, I do think privacy matters. I think mm-hmm. being able to know yourself or to, you know, own yourself matters and the idea of data sounds and technology again sounds enticing maybe on the surface sounds positive but at the end of the day the people who own that data if it's not us Mm -hmm. you're kind of giving yourself away you're you're sort of you're being sold and you don't know and i think that's what's scary about it to me and scary about it in the book is that you know you can't even interact with a person like Soda as this gig driver. Like a lot of what I describe is just what I learned from my friends who drove or drivers who I interviewed or talked to or like, right. Maybe it's two years ahead of what's happening, but you know, it's speculative in the, like the least what, like a lot of, you know, some of this book I wrote, you know, three or four years ago mm-hmm. and stuff that I thought was sort of speculative isn't anymore. Which is fine, but, but it's just <laughs> but sort also of like it, spooky. It's a bit spooky, and it's a bit you know, like if we don't define boundaries, mm-hmm. I think like corporations and governments are willing to assume we've consented. I think mm-hmm. the idea, I think that's a big part of it too, right? Is like the consent mm-hmm. for your data, the consent to be observed, the consent to be surveilled. Um, Every click we make, everything we do, like we all basically carry a personal tracker on us now. It does make our lives a lot simpler and easier in a lot of ways. I don't miss not knowing where my friends live because I was too drunk the last time I went there. But I know I want to be able to control who sees that data and control, Mm -hmm. you know, who that's available to and who is it benefiting And, you know, it is a resource. I think that's a big part of it is it is a resource. Right. And it is something that people will pay a lot of money for. And we have to be vigilant about that. I just want to hear your answer about this, because, again, you know, like we've gone through this whole interview. We talked a lot about existentialism, (laughs) a lot about, you know, surveillance, what all of this means for us now, what it could mean for us in the future. Where do you find optimism about the future that's a 
Very fun question. Uh, for me? No. Uh, honestly, I, in, like, human connection and conversations mm-hmm. like this and being able to talk about art and to make things and to share them with people and that people are open to those conversations and open to those places. I think, I mean, I think, like, part of the book, the, the copy for the book is about these fragile designs. But I do believe that, like, they're fragile, but they matter. And they're worth mm-hmm. preserving, and they're worth enriching, and they're worth um, holding up as a as an example of what we can do. Um, and so, I think that's for me is there is that that optimism comes from people willing to connect with each other, even in the worst possible circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I do think, like at the often when you do see someone in crisis. I think we often do have the motivation to help or to reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, those kind of moments of optimism, they aren't necessarily based in like, um, you know, the reality of our climate situation or the reality of our um, our governments or the reality of our day-to-day grind, but in the ability to, you know, for me, selfishly, to like make art that resonates with people and make art that is seen and is spoken Mm -hmm. about and is, you know, something that can be shared. I think that's where most of my optimism lies. And even in something like the Marigold, like people are like, Oh, this is a, you know, I am a, I'm a, I am a bleak motherfucker in a lot of ways, but for me, like, I like, like, like I do think like Kathy and Henrietta do have their moments and there are these moments of, you know, trying to bring peace to the people we can and trying to, Mm -hmm. You know, like the the narrative of sort of Cabeza in the novel kind of speaks to that as well. I think that's actually, um, to me, very uplifting, <laughs> despite him being or it being a, you know, sewer monster kind of thing, is that, you know, you you learn to cope. And in, then in that coping, you find um, camaraderie and you find connection Mm -hmm. And I think art is really important for that. And that that is what, you know, books can and should be stories can and should be art that challenges us or asks us to take a chance. And even if we do disagree or we reject its terms, we do that on our own. And we do that as willingly and as our like own critic or our own thinking Um, rather than just, you know, zoning out for another seven hours. I do that as well. I'm not above, you know, <laughs> marathoning, you know, seasons of drag race or whatever else I've, but, or Vanderpump or whatever needs to be done. <laughs> but I think like, like making room for that art in our lives, I, I see people doing that. And it that's always giving me um, a positive outlook on things. I, I think, you know, the books I write are bleak. Um, so that I can keep, you know, walking around every day. That's, <laughs> I get out of bed, you know. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a beautiful way to end this conversation today. Um, thank you so much again for, for wanting to participate and participating and giving me such good answers to these questions. Um, this interview really, you know, wrote itself after a certain point. The book really lends itself to, interesting discussions and i'm 
I'm truly looking forward to talking to more people who have also read it. Um, and I'll be slinging lots of copies at the bookshop. Amazing. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex.